It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. Life is all about the choices we make. We all make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes have consequences that force us to take a hard look at ourselves. We are not our mistakes, and we can change our lives for the better. We have the ability to change the direction we are headed in just by making a different choice. We can choose to lie down and play victim, or we can rise above the situation and do what is necessary to get our life back on track. No, it's not always easy, but if we put in the work, we can change our path for the better. My co-host is someone who has done just that. From a bad decision that landed him in prison at the age of 20 to a life-changing program of fighting fires, Michael Hale has taken back his life, and now he shares his story in hopes of inspiring others and letting them know that even though you make a mistake, you can always change the direction your life is headed in for the better. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? You know, I, I am so honored to have you here today because what this show is all about is showcasing people who are making a difference, not only in their own life, but you're doing something that is so phenomenal. And, you know, I'm just going to say this. I really appreciate the fact that you're out there busting your ass fighting fires, going out there, protecting others. And this is something so phenomenal because for you to go through what you did and to make those changes for the better, and now you're not only bettering yourself as a human being, but you're doing something in service of other human beings. So thank you for that. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot. Thank you. Now, you know, when we talk about people's backstories everyone wants to know because you went to prison at a very young age yeah at 20 so when i look back at this i wonder what happened in your childhood you know that put you on that path let's look at your childhood did you have a good childhood what happened when you were growing up that possibly sent you in that direction or if anything at all um Yeah, so that's something that I've spent a lot of time talking about. And so most people, when I talk to them, they would assume, you know, when I would be in prison and they would ask me, like, they would just assume and they'd say, well, you grew up with a silver spoon and you grew up privileged or this and that. And I think maybe it's just the way I carried myself maybe is what led people to believe that. And so for the most part, I didn't care enough about explaining anything to the majority of people. I I had people that I was close with and then I actually, you know, spoke about, you know, things that I don't really talk about or whatever. So, um, that was something I thought about a lot, like what exactly happened and how did this happen and whatever. And so I'm really big on like personal accountability. So I never try to direct blame towards anybody else or anything like that. So when I sat and I thought about it, I was like, well, maybe if I had a better upbringing or childhood or parenting or whatever, maybe things would have been differently. And so, um, I grew up and I, the the earliest thing I can remember growing up, I lived at my grandma's house and it was all of us kids and it was my mom. And, um, I don't really remember my dad being around for whatever reason. I don't know what happened. And then one day I remember my dad showed up and he goes, you guys are all coming with me. And my mom and him went back and forth and they argued or whatever. And then we left. And so I remember we stayed with his friend for a little while and then my dad started to work as an electrician and then he moved us from Maryville's where we lived and then he moved us to North Phoenix um, in the Deer Valley area. So um, I remember being in this small little apartment with, you know, three of my siblings and my dad and um, always thinking like, you know, like how are we all crammed into this little space or whatever? And so, um, Shortly after we moved out of my grandma's house, I, and, I, and I was young, so I don't remember the exact time frame, but the house burned down. And Ooh. from everything I was told, they were saying, well, somebody in the family was 
cooking drugs or something in the garage and burn the house down. So I don't know exactly the truth. So um, my mom after that, I don't really remember having a good relationship with. She didn't come around much. And then as I started to get older, I started to kind of pick up on stuff and realize stuff. And so that's a relationship that even still isn't all that great. I don't, I don't talk to her much. Um, so my dad, you know, he did the best that he could raising us and, you know, working all week and the weekends and all that kind of stuff. And so there wasn't enough or there wasn't, you know, too much focus on us kids as individuals, just with working so much and having so many responsibilities for my dad. And so I think, and that's something that we talked about last time on Badge Boys, just trying to, you know, who do I want people, you know, who, who the audience for, you know, my book and stuff like that is anybody, you know, parents, just to realize like in the crazy hectic, you know, world that we live in, take a little bit of time and, you know, teach your kids something each day and stuff like that. So I think that's part of what went wrong. You know, that definitely didn't help. Um, but as I started to think about it more, I got really close with my older brother and he's the best role model in the world. I mean, he's, he's been the greatest man ever. Like, I mean, he's been through so much. And so he was super close to me from the time I was like 14 and he never did anything wrong. He always set the good example. And I learned a lot from him. And so as I started to think about that, I'm like, well, I can't blame it on, you know, not being raised right because he was right there. And so I lived with him from the time I was, you know, 15 until the time I got arrested, basically. And um, he was always there, always supportive. And I remember um, when I started to get into trouble and doing things, I always remember, like, I have to hide this from him. I have to hide it. Didn't want to disappoint your father figure. No, I didn't. And so, um, I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know if it's directly tied to my childhood or anything like that. Um, but so, and I kind of touched on on bad boys. And, and Darren and I talked about it afterwards. I was like, I thought I was ready to talk about exactly what happened. And then when it came up, I kind of shied away from it. So I told myself when I came here, we'll just talk about it. We'll get it out there and figure it out. So um, it was about six to nine months before I got arrested. And the you know prescription pills were going crazy. And I remember a friend came over one time and he had these pills and he goes, hey, let's do these. And for some reason, I thought it was a good idea. And I remember him saying, like, these are really dangerous. We have to be really careful with these. And I'm, you know, 19 at the time. And I'm just thinking, like, well, whatever, you know, and we did them. Experimentation. We yeah. all go through that in our youth. Experimentation. Yeah. So I did that. And then, um, you know, I remember we just kept doing it and kept doing it. And we would be going out and hanging out. And, you know, at first it was fun or whatever. And then I would be doing them by myself. And so like, I recognized that there was a problem. I, I did recognize it. And then when, um, I started to get into the, you know, crime and stuff, the, the, the friend of mine and I, we would go, he'd go to the pharmacy and he would go inside and he'd say, give me all these pills. And I'd wait outside in the car. He came back and we would drive away. And so the plan was, you know, we'll get rid of all these pills and we'll just make a bunch of money. And then little by little is like, well, let's get rid of most of them and we'll keep some of them. And so we started to do them more and do them more and do them more. And so, I mean, literally it was like a six to nine month stretch where I started to do them and I was in prison. It was, it was so fall. I mean, so fast, how, how quickly, you know, or just the downfall was, was crazy. So, um, started to do the pills and never really, you know, I always knew this is a problem. This is a problem. And, um, just for some reason, couldn't get over it. And then here I am in jail and whatever. So thinking about it, I was like, this is definitely the best case scenario that happened. And so the friend that, you know, I told you about who came over and he goes, Hey, let's try these pills. Um, I hear stuff about him sometimes. They're like, yeah, he's strung out on heroin and nobody knows where he's at. His parents haven't seen or heard from him in a couple of years, ran into him at a gas station and, you know, you can't even recognize the guy. And so, um, so he did jail time as well, right? I honestly don't know. I would imagine at some point he got picked up for something you would think, but I honestly don't know. I have no idea. I don't have any interest to find out. I just, not part of your crowd anymore. No, no, not at all. Not at all. So how many of these robberies did you guys do? Um, it was a couple. It, it was, um, I don't remember exactly on paper what everything ended up being. The you know, court system's kind of funny how it works. Like, you know, we'll drop this one if you, whatever. So 
Um, I don't know. I, at least two. At least two, three, um, something like that. I, I, I can't say for sure. And when he did the first one, you actually were the driver of the car. He was the one that went into the store and actually did the robbery itself. Yeah. So you were the person that was the accomplice. You're guilty by that, pretty much. And I remember you saying something about the first time that it happened. You seemed a little surprised when he came back from the first robbery. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I kind of said it jokingly, but, but I meant it. Like, we form the plan and park around the corner and he'll run in. And so I'm parked around the corner and he leaves and he comes back and he just has a bag and it's full of the pills. And like, I asked him what happened. He goes, Oh, well, they're right here. And I mean, he said it and he got into the car just so casually that like you would assume we were talking about, you know, a loaf of bread or something like that. It was literally that casual. And so, I mean, start to finish at, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we were, you know, from my house there and back to my house and, you know, all that money and stuff. And it was just so quick and so easy. And I knew it was wrong. And I I thought about all that stuff back then. And I was like, well, that was really easy. And it was, you know, a lot of money and whatever. And and then that was it. And so that's the, the crazy part about just being a young, impressionable kid. And so, you know, like I said, I don't want to direct blame or anything like that, but it's so important so important to, you know, talk to the kids, talk to high school kids, talk to your own kids and just remind them of stuff like that. You know, you know what it actually means to be a good person and what's right, what's wrong. Um, you know, things that they probably know, but it doesn't hurt to be reinforced. It right. really doesn't. So. so take us back to the day, and I believe it was in uh, 2011 when you were arrested. Mm-hmm. Take us back to the day that that happened because – you know, you're just the driver of the car and then you're actually selling the drugs and getting the money. And yeah, when you're young, that kind of money is cool to have because, you know, who's going to make that kind of money at that Mm -hmm. age, unless you're doing something that's bad. So take us back to that day, how you got caught and how you were feeling when you finally got caught. Yeah. So I remember, um, I was, I was dating this girl at the time. And so I remember like she, I was getting ready to leave and I told her, Hey, I'm going to go with my friend somewhere. And I remember she started like, she started crying and she's like, where are you going? And I was like, I'll be back in a little bit. You know, my friend wants me to help him with something and I'll be back in a little bit. And so I don't know what she thought was happening, but she just started crying and she's like, please don't leave. Like, she's like, my parents just got back from a trip. Let's go to their house. Let's look at their photos. Please don't leave. And I'm like, well, he's here already. I got to go. And so I leave. And she called me several times. And I remember telling her, you know, I'll, I'll just be a few minutes. I'll just be a few minutes. And I see my friend coming out of the store. And I'm on the phone with her. And I tell her, hey, um, uh, I'm on my way home. I'll be home in 15 minutes. I'll be right there. And so we hung up the phone. And I remember we, um, you know, my friend and, and undercover cops must have been following us somehow, some way. I don't really know exactly how all that happened. Um, but so the undercover cops followed us, and right after we pulled out of the pharmacy, they, you know, helicopters were everywhere and cops were everywhere. And so I remember I, it, it was like a van that, you know, didn't have any markings on it, and it tried to cut me off, and I swerved around it because I didn't know exactly what was going on. And then all of a sudden there's lights and all this stuff, and I remember my friend opened up the car door, and he, tell, and he told me to run, and he started running. And so, you know, I was stupid, but I wasn't that stupid. And so I put my hands on the steering wheel and just, you know, I'm clearly not a threat. And so they yanked me out of the car. And it's still something I think about that's so sad to me is because I was sitting there and I'm handcuffed and my phone is ringing nonstop. So I know it's her and now I'm not answering. So she knows something's wrong. And I just remember feeling so terrible about that. And I still feel awful. And uh, so I'm sitting there handcuffed and we get thrown into the cop cars. And then, you know, the, the process started. So did they catch him? Yes. Okay. Well, that's a good thing. So you didn't go down alone on that. No. Yeah. Luckily, I guess. Um, So yeah, they caught him, caught me. We both went to the jail and, um, you know, every time we would go to court, we would see each other. And um, I remember little by little, I'd see him like once a month and we would talk about it a little bit. Like, don't you feel much better? I I feel much better. Like I'm just getting caught, getting caught, just being, you know, level-headed now and you don't have those pills in your system and just you I felt better 
And so, and it was early on too, where I was like, this is for sure the best thing that could have happened because everybody started to do heroin after they did those pills. And luckily I never tried it. I never went down that road. Um, but who knows what would have happened. So it, it definitely saved my life. I think with the fentanyl crisis, you probably wouldn't even be sitting here if that were the case. Exactly. Exactly. There's a lot of crazy stuff that happened right after I got in trouble. And I remember as it all unfolded, I was like, man, this is the best spot for me. I I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> so take us back to the first day that they put you in the slammer. What was that like, man? So I remember waking up in jail and still you wake up and you know, you don't quite panic, but you wake up and you kind of look around and everything settles in. You're like, what the, f- what, what happened? And so it was a long period of that for me. Um, and then I remember the first day I just, I didn't talk to anybody. And I remember they're telling me you have to go get your food. And I was like, I'm good. I'm just going to sit in here. And I sat in there by myself and just started to just think about stuff. And, you know, everybody's always sorry after they get caught, you know, that's always like the classic line, but it was like really early on where I was like, man, I, I feel really bad. Not just for what I did to myself, but how I let my family down and, um, you know, friends and um, the path that I was on. You know, I was going to college and stuff like that. And I just started to think about everything, you know, everything that I lost and um, everything that would be so hard to get back. And um, I remember my brother telling me one of the first phone calls, like, well, you better start thinking of a new career because nobody's going to hire you in the business world being a felon. And that always stuck with me. And I was like, man, like, it's going to be really hard now. And, um, that, that's what I wanted to go to school for is, you know, some sort of business management or business communication, something. And so, um, yeah, it, it was so early or I was like, yeah, I, I fucked up and I'm really sorry now. <laughs> I wish I could tell somebody that like, I, I really mean it. I'm sorry. I'll never do it again, whatever. And it's just, it's so easy to be a young kid to being thrown in there and you have nobody and you realize like I'm completely responsible for everything now. And it's just, you got to man up, you know, and that's what I did. <laughs> and that's a scary thing because recidivism runs rampant. And, yeah. you know, you, you take a young child or a young man or a young woman and you put them in this type of situation. And yes, they did something to get there. But a lot of times they don't truly understand why they do what they do. I'm sure you're in that position, too, mm-hmm. because when you're when you're taking the drugs, you're kind of in a different mindset and it becomes part of the control over you. And a lot of times people who become addicts, they commit crimes because they have that need to stay high so they don't get sick. And it just becomes, you know, they, they continue to do the same things over and over again. And, and with you, at that very moment, you're in there the first day, you're already thinking, I fucked up. How do I change this? I mean, that's not a mindset I hear too many people saying. It's usually, yeah, I fucked up. Now what do I do? poor me, poor me, you know, I'm not guilty. I really didn't do this. Oh, yes, I did. But when you got sentenced, what did they sentence you to as far as your time? Oh, it was 10 and a half years. Wow. Yeah. And so the agreement that I signed was 10 and a half years to 16 years. So I remember sitting in court and my lawyers telling me, you'll get 10 and a half years. And then when it's fine, you know, finally time to go out and get sentenced, he's like, this is really bad. I don't know what's going to happen. And I remember I was sitting there and I was like, there's no way I can go to prison for 16 years. I didn't think 10 and a half years. I didn't think that was possible. And then, you know, so I sat there and luckily, you know, everybody spoke on my behalf and I think that's really what saved me. I had a few key, key people there who, who I think really made a big difference. And, uh, you know, the judge said 10 and a half years and off I went. Wow. That's quite a big thing for a kid who's 19, 20 years old to be told, hey, you're going to go to prison for 10 and a half years. Yeah. You know, that that's your formidable years that you get out of high school, go to college and start planning for the rest of your life. And here you are behind those steel bars. I know. I know. It was it was crazy. And um, so most people like, you know, the kids my age or younger, they would get in there and they would right away just start to be controlled and manipulated and start to conform to everything that's in there. So, you know, guys would start getting all these prison tattoos or they'd start beating people up to try to get like recognition or whatever they did it for and uh, start to do drugs again too. That That's, that's super popular. Um, and I remember always thinking like, how stupid, like, and what do you need a second chance for? Cause you're clearly going to blow it. And if I always thought that was really crazy, like how can you do something and go through something so traumatic and 
have everything taken away from you, get thrown in prison, and then you get there and you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start fucking up again. I just never could understand that. I never could understand that. And so, you know, there was a very like select group of people who I was willing to talk to, like people who seemed like, um, you know, they had the same goals that I did and they actually cared about, you know, themselves and um, doing something better and just getting out of that hole. So, um, it, it was really sad to watch that just young kids come in there and just be manipulated. And so I think that creates a big problem too, is they get in there and then they're like, Oh, you can get tattoos and do drugs and have fun in here. So it's not so bad. And then you would just see the stages. You'd see a guy who was 60 years old and you could just tell, you know, and talking to him and hearing the stories, it's his fifth time, sixth time in there. And, um, that just always struck me as crazy. How can you get thrown in prison, have everything taken from you? And you still don't reflect on what on, on what's happening to yourself. You know, I never could understand that. Some people grow comfortable in that mindset because it's easier to stay where you're at mm-hmm. than to try to grow and to change because changing is not easy. It really isn't. And you know that as well as I do. I mean, you you started in there as a very young man and here you go. Now, what do I do with my life? So you're hanging around the right kind of people, which saves you from all the bullshit that usually goes on behind bars. Yeah. So talk about just your daily activities. Let people know what it was like for you, because I've heard it from so many of my friends that have done time. They've talked about how they had to toughen up or pick sides because when they first got in, it was really difficult for them. And when I look at you, I see no tattoos. I see... For all intents and purposes, he's a pretty little boy. I mean, I'm not in a bad way, but that's what the way they talk about you in prison. He's a good-looking young man. So you're the prime candidate to be someone who's going to be picked on for those kind of guys to try to turn you into one of their flunkies, more or less. So how did you really avoid that? I know you talked about hanging around certain people, but you were there for quite some time, for many years. This has to be a certain process that you put in your mindset every single day when you get up and you're around these people, how do you keep from running with the bad crowd? Because they're going to pick on the youngsters. This is what they do. They try to turn you out to be one of them. So how did you do that every single day? You know, it seems like it's complicated, um, but for me, it really wasn't. Like I would stay pretty much by myself and I would do everything by myself. We'd be locked down and you'd have to stay where you, you know, were housed at and be out for certain hours of the day or whatever. And so I didn't really interact with anybody. I didn't talk to many people. I went and ate by myself and I did everything by myself. And so I remember well, like, you know, and I, and I talk, I was talking about this the other day, but so I fell in love with basketball when I was a kid, like 14 years old. And it was because of my brother, Jared, who I talked about earlier, him and I bonded over basketball. I fell in love with basketball. And so I remember every day waking up in prison and your mind, you know, as soon as you wake up, everything starts running through your head. You know, I'll be here for the next nine years. I probably going to lose this, probably lost that, probably lost this. And it's nonstop. And that really, really like it messed with me pretty good. And so every day I would wake up and I would, you know, start having those thoughts and I would go outside, I'd grab a basketball and I'd go out to the court and I'd just shoot baskets by myself for, you know, three or four hours every single day. And so when I was out there, it sounds kind of corny, but it, but it's true and it's real. I would go out there and I would completely zone out. I wouldn't see anything. I wouldn't hear anybody. I would just be shooting by myself. And, you know, why didn't I make that one? What did I do wrong? I got lost in that. And so every day I would do that every single day. And then little by little, I think things just got easier. I started to cope with stuff and, you know, you just adapt. And so after, but that was a big coping thing for me. I felt like that really saved me in there. I don't think if I had something I loved that much, I don't think I would have been as tough mentally. I think every day I would have woke up, I would have been overcome by all those thoughts. And I would have just, I, I, I don't think I would have made it the same way. I really don't. And so basketball, I, I swear basketball going out there, being by myself, shooting, forgetting about everything. Six months later, I just, you adapted and everything was a little bit easier. And then, you know, I stayed with basketball the whole time I was in there. I mean, I played you know, every day for months and months. And then I, you know, as I started to work and things got crazy, every chance I'd get, I'd play. It saved me. I swear. It's weird to say that, but I swear it's true. 
Hey, sometimes you got to find a vice no matter what it is. Yeah. And that's a healthy one. I mean, it keeps you in shape plus the hand-eye coordination. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it keeps you going. And that's smart because it keeps you out of trouble. Yeah, it sure did. It really did. Were there opportunities where you were presented with something to get into trouble with? Oh, yeah. In there, it's so funny the way it works. Like, it's similar to being out here. Like, the you know, you got your drug dealers and you, it's it's weird. So... People would come up to me and they would say, hey, I got some heroin. Um, I'll give it to you for free and just see how you like it or whatever. And never did it cross my mind. You know, like, I'm really good on that. No thanks. And then people, I got some weed. Do you want that? And I'm really good on that, too. And um, it's easy. If you it's really easy to get wrapped up into shit in there. And I think for the most part. You know, most people my age come in there, they are being overwhelmed by those thoughts that I was having and feeling so down on themselves. And it's easy for you to just give in. And so for me, it just, it was never an option for me, never an option. And I've always been big on journaling and stuff like that. And I remember always writing stuff down and creating a goal list. Like a year from now, I want to try to have this done. And then a year from then, I want to try to have this done. And so I went in there, I was so focused. I was so focused and I mean, there was no way anybody was going to get me involved in anything. There's no way. I was going to ask you about that journaling because I've seen several people who have written books while they were in prison mm-hmm. because you have all the time in the world and it's something to channel all that extra energy. Plus, it's very cathartic. You're getting that shit out of your system because you've got no one in there really that has your back. But you, you have to protect yourself. So you have to be able to expunge this crap out of your system. Yep. And I know that you got involved in some programs. What else did, before we get to the big one here, mm-hmm. what were some of the things that you did to better yourself there? Because I know there's educational type stuff that's set up. I've seen guys that have actually got lawyer degrees while they're in prison. So yeah. what did you do for yourself before we get into the firefighting? Um, I started working in the education building and started to work as a tutor. So I would tutor guys on um, getting their GED and stuff like that. And then Um, I signed up for college classes in there too. So I started doing all the college that I could. And it was a really cool opportunity for me because I would go to the education building at like seven in the morning and I would stay there until like seven o'clock at night. So that was a big part of helping me, you know, stay out of all the drama and, you know, craziness. I was up there all day. And so I would help the guys study and then I would do my own schoolwork and I stayed really busy doing that. And that was my life for, you know, I started doing it like three or four months after I got to prison. And then I did it for the next three, three and a half years. So, and then, you know, by the time those three and a half years were over, everybody was like, oh, well, he's obviously not going to get involved in our bullshit. And I just was left alone. (laughs) That's pretty awesome though, because you're, you're already here. You are in your early twenties. You did something wrong. You went to prison, but you're doing things at this point already to help other people. That's something that's instilled in you from a very young age, obviously. And I think that's kind of cool because you don't see a lot of prisoners doing that to help other prisoners. It's usually, I've got your back, I'll knife the guy. If he gets on your case, I'll kick his ass, I'll kill him. This is totally something different that I didn't know about you, which I find is very interesting that you're actually in service from that very first time. You weren't even in prison three months, as you said, that you started helping other prisoners. So. I can understand why they would leave you alone. Yeah. Because yeah. you're you're doing something to help them, so why bother? Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. So let's talk about fighting fires. All right. I think that's <laughs> cool because you know, we I have friends that have been in and out of prison in the past and they talk about how rehabilitation is something that's few and far between. And these programs have been demolished by governments and by the prison systems because a lot of the prison systems have gone to private prisons where people are investing money and getting money back. So prisoners are being treated like commodities and they don't really do rehabilitation to get them back into the working world because a lot of times when they're released, they're lost. They don't know what they're going to do with their lives. So they end up back in the system. And I remember I did a show earlier last year on this that by year eight, after a prisoner is released from prison, doesn't matter what he did or she did, by year eight, 81% of them that have been released are back in prison. So that's a high number of recidivism versus rehabilitation. And when you first came in the studio on Badge Boys and talked about 
the program you got involved in, this rehabilitation program, Fighting Fires, I lit up like like a big forest fire myself because I'm like, this is so cool to finally hear that the prison system is doing something with rehabilitation. So tell us how you got involved in that because I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing that, that you're doing because I wanted to be a firefighter at one time. Didn't work out, unfortunately, but I admire people that run into the fire that save others. And, you know, I really admire the fact that you not only turned your life around, but this is what you chose to do. So tell us how you got involved with fighting fires and getting into that program at the prison system. So I remember when I very first heard about it. So I got moved to this new yard facility and I remember um, that that's where the fire crew was and they didn't have one of these where I was prior to that. And so I remember it was like 10 o'clock at night or something and all these beds were empty. And I remember asking this guy, I said, why are there so many people gone? Where are these people at? And he's like, oh, they're on the fire crew. And so I started to ask questions like, well, what does that mean? And then, uh, you know, started to learn, you know, it's a real program they have where they'll um, train you, get you certified and all that. And then you can actually go out and go to fires and, so I started to learn all that and it sounds crazy even to talk about it. Like you can be in prison and you can be a firefighter. You can be, you know, sleeping outside of prison. Like that was crazy to me. And so, um, like you always said, I've always been pretty selfless and I've always wanted to help people. And so the more I learned about it, I was like, that's really cool. And that's by far the best thing I can do, not only for myself, but for the community as well. So, I got really interested in that. And so I started to ask those guys when they came back, like, Hey, how does this work exactly? And, um, they would tell me like, you know, you seem like you'd be a really good fit for that. And so I started to train for it and then eventually took the classes and all that. And, uh, it just worked out. You know, I got, did all the training and certifications and then I got picked and I was on the crew and that was that. So what was your first day like fighting a fire? Um, so it, it wasn't that eventful, honestly. <laughs> I remember being, you know, really overwhelmed and being, you know, super excited and you get the butterflies, you don't really know what to expect. And I kind of talked about it a little bit before. Um, well, we hike in as like three mile hike and I had 90 pounds on me. So I'm just super tired. And then we get there and it was, you know, you know, maybe a stretch of a 200 feet maybe. And they were like, yeah, you guys just have to make sure the edge of this is cold. The fire had already been passed there and um, progression had been stopped. There wasn't open flame or anything like that. So it was just a bunch of, you know, charred mountainside. And we just checked it, made sure that it was all cold and worked for a couple hours. And they were like, well, you guys can leave now. And we left. And so that's what I really like about fire too, is every time it's different. Like the, the, you know, things, the things that are burning, the fuel type is different every time. The way it moves is different every time. The way you attack it is different. So, um, the very first fire, that's what it was like uneventful, not very exciting. And then it wasn't too long after that where, you know, the next one we show up and it's just us there, our crew, and there's a fire going straight up this mountain. And, um, James, who I was with here on, on badge boys, he was in charge of me and I remember him yelling at me and screaming at me and telling me to get closer to the fire and you can't put it out unless you're right on top of it. And just, you know, you got 90 pounds on your back and you're trying to run up this mountain and put the fire out at the same time. And it's something you look at and you think about now and you're like, that's impossible. And then you get to the top of this mountain and the fire's out and then you realize how far you've come and the work that you actually did. And, um, yeah, I tell people all the time, like, you never know what you're capable of until somebody asks you. You know, you don't know what you're capable of until you're actually put in that situation. So it all it all changes. But the first fire, uneventful. And after that, though, it was pretty crazy. Have you had any crazy fires? Real bad? Um, yeah, there's been a few. Um, there was a really bad one um, in Prescott. And so we got there and all of us kind of thought like, this is going to be relatively easy. It was just a bunch of grass that was an inch high. And we got there and the winds were like 50 miles an hour and they were changing directions every five minutes. So we were watching houses burn down and, um, you know, cattle and stuff like that being trapped. And, uh, it was just crazy people panicking to get in and out homeowners refusing to leave their houses. And then now they're involved and they're making it harder and, um, you know, propane tanks going off and just crazy. Like literally, you know, 
you think you have a handle on it and 30 seconds later the fire's going a completely different direction and or now it's moving at you and that that was probably the craziest one just a dozen houses catching on fire and not really knowing what to do that was probably the craziest one that's kind of what killed the granite mountain hotshots was that whole shift in the wind coming back and then blowing the fire across them so i can only imagine when you're standing there and you're faced with that it's an adrenaline rush but then again, you're thinking in the back of your or do you even think in the back of your mind how dangerous this situation is? Or are you more focused on the work at hand? That's what it is for me. Um, there's been a lot of times where I thought, you know, this is probably pretty dangerous or whatever. And those thoughts, at least for me, they left my mind super fast. I was just like, well, we know what we got to do. And this is the best, most efficient way probably to get it done. So the quicker we do it, the safer we're going to be. Um, so that kicked in for me like really early on. I didn't really ever panic or, you know, fear for my life or anything like that. It was always like, we have a task and we'll do it and everything will probably be okay. <laughs> so you're pretty focused. Yeah. Because sure. I've heard that uh, you've been in charge of some fire crews too while you were doing this. Yeah. So I got um, the opportunity to be the squad leader for one of the squads on the crew. So the crew is. Um, 21 people and then it's broken out into two different squads and so each squad has you know about nine people on it and so I was in charge of uh, alpha squad so I had eight guys that I was responsible for and you know taking into fires and making sure that they're safe and all that stuff and so um, we kind of talked about like leadership development and stuff like that and so just to think you can be in prison and learn like real life leadership skills and qualities that will transfer to any job that you do. Um, that's pretty crazy to me, but, um, I took that really seriously. I always thought like, you know, I got all these dudes looking at me and counting on me. I better know my stuff and be, you know, super savvy when it comes to all this and study what I can and ask as many questions to people who know more than me and always be prepared and, relied upon just i know like any crazy situation we got into and everybody feel a little overwhelmed and they'd look around like are you sure about this they'd look at me and i always got a lot of satisfaction out of that knowing people could look at me just in a high stress time and be like all right we're gonna follow this guy and everything will be okay i always loved that i really did so did you ever think sitting in that prison cell before you started fighting fires, did you ever think you'd be in that position to be leading other people as a young man in his 20s and going into situations that are so life-threatening to everybody around? Never crossed my mind, ever. And so all my jobs I had prior to going to prison was like office work and you know wearing a you know nice clothes and air conditioning and stuff like that. And so... I was never known for hard work or being dirty even. And so I remember I started telling my family about the fire crew and this is what I'm going to do. Every single one of them was like, what? That doesn't seem like something you'd be into. And I didn't think so either. But like we said, you don't know what you're capable of until you're thrown in it. And uh, right away I started doing it and I loved it. I loved it. And uh, that's all, you know, fire really is, is, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you start to get, notice for leadership and all that kind of stuff it's just how many responsibilities can you handle without breaking and how many things can you do at once without complaining and just organizing stuff and whatever but i never ever ever thought it's still crazy to even think about now everything i learned and the knowledge i gained and how it transfers to being out here like it's real stuff that you can use so it's i mean that that's the best program ever it really it changes your mindset, it seems. Yeah, yeah, it did. It, it like if I was already, you know, on my way to maturity and all that stuff, but it changed a lot of stuff for me. I started to look at stuff in such a different way. You know, we'd be on a fire and there'd be 800 people there. And it's like all these people are here working towards the same thing. And like, it's serious. And like it, it made, it, I think it forced me to grow up and mature just a little bit faster. And I, there, I don't, I don't think there's a better way I could have spent, you know, my last four years. I think it prepared me for, for being out here. And, you know, like you said, the recidivism is so high, but with me, everything I went through and learned, like, it's impossible. Like I'll never go back to prison. It's impossible. It's impossible. And you haven't been out very long. No. uh-uh. So it's a little bit over three months now. Isn't that crazy? It feels like it's been years already. It's so crazy. Like you get out here and everything moves so fast. It feels like it's been years. Like I feel so normal and just part of the world again. 
And, you know, I've heard this story a couple times now, but I think it's so important because you've actually touched on it a couple times about talking to your kids and having that relationship. But you mentioned on a prior show about an experience while you were in prison going to talk at a high school and running into a young teenage girl. That experience to me, that story is something very phenomenal because it it touched my heart and my soul when I heard it. And I want you to share that with everybody here because that is an experience that when, when I first met you and you walked in through my studio doors, no one would know. No one would even look at you and think you're a guy that's been in prison for this. You look like a firefighter. So this young girl took you at face value and didn't see below the surface. She did. She judged the book by its cover. Mm-hmm. But I want you to share with everybody what happened that day when you were at that high school talking. And everyone, keep in mind, he was still in prison at this time. So share that story with everyone. Yeah, so still being in prison. And anytime we would leave the prison, we would put on our green Nomex pants. And then we would have just a regular black t-shirt that said, Lewis Fire. Um, and so we went into public and that's what we look like. So, you know... You weren't wearing orange like everybody would imagine and stuff. So nobody knows. And so we go to this high school to um, participate in a toy drive where we're giving out, you know, toys and stuff like that to underprivileged families. And so I'm checking in volunteers and this young girl comes in and she starts just, you know, being bratty or whatever. And so she's kind of giving me a hard time. I'm trying to sign her in and she's giving me a hard time. And she eventually tells me I'm here because I have to be this is community service and whatever. And so I just keep talking to her, keep talking to her. And she, um, she ends up telling me how she's a bad kid and there's no way somebody like her could ever do anything with her life. And I, I remember she said this, I, I like, I can hear it. I can see it. Everything. She told me if you're a bad kid, you'll always be a bad kid. And so I'm just letting her talk and I'm listening to her really trying to figure her out and see, um, cause some kids that they, they think they're bad kids and you'll never be able to tell them anything different. Right. But with her, it was different. I felt like, you know, she's just saying this. She's trying to be tough. She wants people to think she's tough or whatever, but that's not who she is. And I, and I knew it wasn't. And so I let her go on. I let her talk. And then uh, she walked away. And I remember a buddy of mine, um, him and I are sitting there and we're laughing about it. Like, hey, the little girl was crazy. And uh, I just kept thinking about her, you know, like thinking there's, you know, she doesn't want to be like this. She doesn't, but maybe she needs somebody to kind of tell her and explain to her, like, you know, you don't have to be tough and, you know, just, just try to give her something positive. And so I tracked her down and I started talking to her and, uh, I'm explaining to her, you know, you don't have to be a bad kid. I know you said that and that's what you think, but you don't have to be a bad kid forever. That's a, you know, it's not, not real. And so, she ended up telling me after some dialogue, she, she ended up telling me, well, your life's perfect. And you, all you wanted your whole life was to be a firefighter and look at you, you did it and everything's going just like you planned it and whatever. And so as we're talking about this, um, one of the wardens for the prison was kind of standing nearby and he's just eavesdropping. And I end up telling her, I was like, yeah, you know, I am a firefighter, but I'm in prison right now. And I said, I made a lot of bad choices and all that stuff. And I was a bad kid and I'm not a bad kid anymore. I'll never be a bad kid ever again. I remember the warden looked at her, you know, after I tell her I'm in prison and she didn't believe me. And so I told her, I was like, I promise you like tonight I'll go back. I will sleep in a prison. I will wake up in a prison and I'll be wearing orange. Like it's just like the movies or whatever you picture in your head. And she still didn't believe me. And then the warden chimes in and he goes, yeah, he's an inmate at the prison that I supervise. And right away it kind of hit her and she started to take it seriously. And so once I realized that I had her attention, I started to really focus on that. Like I was a bad kid. I did a lot of crazy stuff. I did a lot of bad stuff. And I kind of thought the same thing you did. Like, this is just the path I'm on or whatever, but you don't have to be like that. You know, I said, that's what I thought. I went to prison. I started taking steps. I started to figure out what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be, um, what I wanted people to think of me. And I started to work towards that and I started to do stuff for that. So I know I said it before, but like, you know, and I try to explain to her, if you want something better for yourself. And I remember she told me she had goals. She wanted to be something when she grew up. And I told her that's perfect. Every day, wake up and do something that helps you get closer to that every single day. And so she listened to me, she listened to me. And then I remember when we walked away and 
I remember we were driving away and I'm looking at her outside of the window and she's talking to another group of girls and I instantly looked at her and you could tell like she had a different demeanor about her. She wasn't being, you know, rambunctious and crazy like she was when I first met her a couple hours ago. It seemed like she was a little bit more composed and she just was like, it looked like she was a little bit more serious. And so that was like, that was a pretty big moment for me because I thought like people can learn stuff you know, from my experience, hopefully. And that's the biggest thing for me is I just want people to understand, like, you know, like you said, the recidivism is so high Mm -hmm. and people think they have to give in and, you know, succumb to all the pressure and whatever. It's easy to fail. It's easy to give up and not believe in yourself. But I want people to know that, you know, there is a way to do it. There is a way that you can be better. And there is a way that, you know, you can just, be a better person and have something different for yourself and just believe in yourself. And most people, um, I think sell themselves short. So that's what I want to do. I just want to get people to understand, you know, there is, you know, a different way to look at life. There's a different way to do this. And so that's really big for me. So what are you doing now with your life that you've been out of prison for three months? Um, there's been so much. Um, so I started working a sales manager job in Tucson and, um, that's going pretty well. I go down there a couple times a week and then I applied for the forest service to try to work as a firefighter out here. And so that's kind of a slow process. So everybody does their hiring differently and at different times and so whatever, but I'm hoping in the next three or four weeks, Um, I'll get a couple offers. Um, I know people have already called my old boss and asked questions about me and trying to figure stuff out. Um, But in the next few weeks, I will for sure have a job as a firefighter, for sure. I love that confidence right there. That says a lot. (laughs) Yeah. That says a lot because there's a lot that goes into firefighter training. It's not that easy. Yeah. It's not. You have to learn not just the physical aspects and the demands, but you also have to understand the different things, the chemicals, how things are going to react and act underwater, under pressure with different chemicals mixed together. That's a lot of knowledge. Yeah. That is a lot. So I'm kind of curious, have you gone back to the prison system and worked with anybody or talked to any of the prisoners about this type of program, what it could do for them? Um, yeah. So before I left, I haven't been back there since or anything like that, but um, before I left, I remember there was a big group of guys who just started and they hadn't been to any fires yet. They hadn't got any of the training yet. They were just starting. And so I remember sitting down with a few of them and trying to explain to them, like, you know, I'm on the tail end of this. It was four years for me and this is what it did for me. And these are the opportunities I'm going to have once I get home and just try to explain how life changing this program can be. And, um, so I think I did a good job with those guys because I remember walking away and they're like, hey, you know, thank you so much for explaining that to us and letting us know and, you know, trying to just give them some sort of insight to what they can look forward to. And so um, it's kind of hard. I can't just, you know, talk to these guys the way I want to. But um, I do have a plan to try to coordinate with one of the staff members there and be able to come back there. Um, at least once or twice a year, maybe right before the hiring starts for um, the season for guys who are getting close to getting out and stuff like that. But um, that's something I really want to do is go back and be able to explain to those guys, um, you know, these opportunities, these, you know, the training you get here, all this stuff, it's real and it will help you once you get out here and um, just try to motivate the guys and then help them out, you know, apply for jobs and just set them on the right track and, um, uh, somehow, some way, I'm going to get involved with that and be able to help those guys too. Well, you're a living testament of how it saved you. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that is awesome. I cannot, uh, I can't believe, you know, I've run into so many people that have gone through things in life and you're the perfect example of somebody who can turn anything around. And just hearing you talk about your story is so inspiring to me. So I'm really thankful that you came in today to talk about this. I think that people can learn a lot by just understanding that we're not our mistakes. We can change at any given moment. Life is going to happen no matter what, but it doesn't mean that we have to become that mistake for the rest of our life. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, I would talk to people about stuff like that all the time, and they would say, you know, you're wasting all these years in prison and whatever, and so... Yeah, I'm hearing I'm stuck, but you know, the only wasted time I think there is is when you don't learn something. So 
I took all that time and I learned as much as I could about myself and I tried to fix everything that I thought went wrong and, you know, learn something, you know, like take a deep look instead of looking at somebody or, you know, a situation and instantly, you know, like being judged at face value or whatever, just dig deeper into that and think like, you know, this time is wasted if I sat here and didn't do anything, but I didn't. I was there for 10 years, but I learned a lot and I came out much better. So to me, it wasn't wasted time. It, it really wasn't. I got a lot out of that. <laughs> well, I'm very proud of you for what you've accomplished. And I look forward to seeing you somewhere fighting fires and uh, maybe even being a hotshot somewhere in the forestry system. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As soon as all that stuff happens, I'll for sure start sending some pictures. And Oh, I would love that. I will. I will. We'll make sure everybody gets to see how you're, uh, how you're advancing. Because, I mean, come on, I'm a woman. Everybody loves firefighters. <laughs> yeah. I, I know guys appreciate them, but women, we love firefighters. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm really grateful that you came in today to, to share your story, and I'm very proud to be, at least I would hope you call me your friend. Absolutely. Because I'm very proud of you and all of the advances that you've made, and I look so forward to seeing how life turns out for you. Yeah, I'll for sure keep you updated, um, but at the same time, thank you, because this was a big part of for, for me getting out. It's, you know, I wanted to talk to people about stuff and explain my situation and just inspire people to, you know, don't succumb to the bullshit and your mistakes, but dig out of that. Somehow find a way. Stop making excuses. I can't do this because of that, but start justifying everything. I'm going to do this because of this, and I will accomplish this because of that. And just thank you so much. This is thank you. Taking accountability and making the change for the better. Yep. You know, I usually do a summation for these shows, but I am not even going to bother doing <laughs> that because you just did it for me. So thank you again, Michael. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.